world is dying. The new world struggles to be born. Now is a time of monsters. So what better time to discuss a book about the ways in which right-wing intellectuals are envisioning ways of reorganizing sovereignty more to their favor than the already existing systems. This is Reading in the Time of Monsters, Episode 7. I'm your host, Peter. Thank you for joining us. Today, we have our second guest uh, in the interview portion that we are going to have of this podcast. You will hear me discuss the book Crack Up Capitalism with its author, Quinn Slobodian, who is a professor of the history of ideas at Wellesley College. Crack Up Capitalism is about uh, the effort on the part of libertarian and anarcho-capitalists to envision a world of zones, not nations or uh, countries, confederations, what have you, but of special economic zones, the partition of sovereignty into smaller and smaller and more intentionally designed and more specifically anti-democratic units. This is in keeping with Slobodian's work on the intellectual development of efforts to encase market arrangements and the established hierarchies of wealth and power from democratic pressure that is defined right-wing libertarian thought in the 20th century. It's a great book, and I think it's a pretty good talk with... Dr. Slobodian. So I hope you enjoy that. Uh, brief self-crit. Still working on audio production stuff. It's a slow learning curve. This isn't the kind of thing I'm used to, but this should be the first episode that features uh, music. The music might change, but for now, I, I always wanted there to be music in this podcast. And it so happened I knew a man who had some podcast music uh, just laying around options ready uh, for me to choose from, which was unexpected. Who, who Who is this man? Well, he's a man who had podcast music, and that's all I'm going to say about him right now. Perhaps more will be revealed. But like I said, uh, working on patching all that together, also working on having somewhat more structured conversations Hope to see more of that in my next episode, which is more of a solo episode, where I'll be discussing a series of books that interested me that I read recently. The conversation with Dr. Slobodian was pretty structured in no small part because he's a busy man, only so much time. I don't want to eliminate the exploratory nature of this podcast, and of particularly of the interplay between myself and guests. But I do get that a more structured conversation, I think, could be beneficial for a lot of listeners and, and for myself and my guests as well. But either way, that's in the future. And right now, we are going to go to our interview with Quinn Slobodian. Enjoy. All right. Uh, today, we have on uh, Quinn Slobodian, who is the, I wrote it down somewhere, the Marion Butler McLean Professor in the History of Ideas 
at Wellesley University, and we're going to talk about his new book, Crack Up Capitalism, which uh, came out last week. Uh, I think it's a very interesting uh, book, well worth picking up. And uh, Gwen, do you want to give us kind of a rundown on on what this book is about? Sure. Um, well, the book is kind of, it's kind of got two faces to it, I suppose. One side of it is a kind of introduction to some of the ways that capitalism has unfolded and operated in the last few decades. So it focuses in particular on these things that I call in the book zones that are sometimes literally called that in the form of things like special economic zones, export processing zones and the like, but also places that are like international financial centers or tax havens. And the idea of looking at these subnational spaces was that I think that a lot of the time in public discussion, there was a kind of default to there being only kind of two scales, like either it's global or it's national. You know, mm-hmm. we had a kind of era of globalization and then we hit the wall of 2016 and there was a snapback to nationalism. And now the question is, will we return to globalization or are we caught in a world of nationalism? And I think that's actually a pretty bad way to just describe the way that capitalism works. Um, mm-hmm. For some time, geographers and anthropologists and uh, sociologists and architectural theorists have been really drawing our attention to all of these subnational jurisdictions that the places where, you know, manufacturing happens, financial services happen. Um, mm. Investors are lured in through all kinds of sort of incentives, holidays, and so on. So part of the book is just a kind of a way of saying, huh, let's look at the world economy since the 1980s or 90s. You know, what have the big stories been? You know, what? how did China rise how did a uh, obscure place like Dubai become okay. such a central part of the global imagination? Why have these um, minuscule little patches of territory become such objects of fascination and in some ways enormous profitability in mm. the last few decades? So there's that side of the book, which is kind of just like, you know, if you thought that the whole story was just the world is flat, Mm. Or, you know, we're still in a world of nations. Well, we can also think about a world of zones. Mm-hmm. The other side of the book is kind of an intellectual history. So my most recent book before this was called Globalists, and it looked at this group of self-described neoliberal intellectuals from the period of the 1930s and the kind of crack up of European empires up to the 1990s. Someone like Friedrich Hayek was a main character there. And the intention of that book was to show that neoliberalism as a philosophy and in many ways as a sort of practice of um, economic governance was not about making the state disappear. It was about kind of deploying the state and deploying law in ways to encase markets and produce a kind of uh, insulated uh, place for or the exchange of goods and, and capital over borders that would not be disrupted by democratic forces. Mm. So this book kind of follows up on that by picking up a cast of characters who are kind of observing this zonification, observing this uh, multiplication of new subnational jurisdictions globally, 
from the 1970s and 80s onward. And they're kind of getting really excited, basically. They're just like, wow, what could this mean? Like, maybe we can actually rethink the whole global state system as such. Maybe we can actually um, opt out of existing societies. It seems to only be successful in a limited sense to uh, try to tie the hands of democratic lawmakers. You know, the welfare state keeps growing, social spending as a proportion of GDP is continuing to rise in industrialized countries like Britain and United States. Um, maybe we need a more radical solution to protect economic freedom as they understand. So the there's a kind of a hard right group of libertarians, um, otherwise known as anarcho-capitalists, who believe that you can in fact try to sort of slip the bonds of states altogether mm. and perhaps create um, alternative sites of settlement, alternative jurisdictions, which could be platforms for any number of things, you know, manufacturing, new forms of building, construction, offering offshore services. So the book is like both kind of grounded in real life history of the last several decades, but then also uses that as kind of a launch pad for some of the more extreme and kind of underdocumented forms of libertarian or neoliberal philosophy. In that sense, it kind of moves from the, the usual focus on Milton Friedman, the Chicago School economist, and looks more at his son, David Friedman, mm. who is a pretty wild character, and his David Friedman's son, Patry Friedman, who's a similarly wild character, kind of former Google engineer come entrepreneur of what he calls and other people call startup societies. Yeah. So I'm kind of trying to chart some of the more outer rim of um, market radicalism instead of just telling the same story that we've heard many times of kind of Hayek and Friedman, Reagan and Thatcher. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and I think you could make the argument that that story is increasingly important uh, given the recession of whatever whatever we want to say about the viewpoint of well it's either uh, global a globalist flattening focus or a nationalist focus but something is happening and traditional neoliberalism doesn't seem to be uh, as strong as it was uh, per, mm -hmm. uh, maybe that's not a valid read but that mm -hmm. was sort of my takeaway was that perhaps it's not as strong as it was. And so these other, these alternative ideas of how things might work, especially if the 21st century continues to be as sort of rocky as it appears uh, mm -hmm. that it will be, could provide openings for these uh, efforts to create these kind of mini platform societies do you have a mm -hmm. particular favorite like you that you like to use when you want to explain this concept to people um i have, oh i have so many favorites <clears throat> it's like how can you choose one child right yeah um but i would say no i, I would say just in follow-up to what you said a moment ago because i think you're definitely getting the getting the kind of spirit of the inquiry which is that I think that there was a, an optimistic way that if you looked at the world in the 19 crest of the 1990s, let's say you could say, 
if you were a neoliberal, were the people I tend to study. And if neoliberalism is, as I think can be summarized or defined as the sort of ongoing effort to protect capitalism from democracy, mm-hmm. then you could say, well, now that the Cold War is over and the primary communist threat has been defeated, you could see a kind of equilibrium in which you have indeed self-determining political nation states you know, across the world but you also have a common sort of embeddedness in a global economy with increasingly its own kind of suite of accompanying institutions. So the creation of the World Trade Organization in 1995 is a good example of a kind of step change where people are seemingly willing at the state level to kind of legalize or juridify um, private economic relationships in a way that you know doesn't create kind of one world government by any stretch of the imagination, but it does create like a kind of more reliable mm. economic infrastructure to keep states like more or less in harness or in line for a particular economic model. I think that the places where that starts to show its kind of where and the reason why I do think the topic of this book is kind of relevant for the present and probably the near future is you get on the one hand, I think a kind of um, political process of fragmentation that is often overlooked. I think in our looks backward at the period since the end of the cold war, I think that often people just think of it as a kind of Kumbaya Coca-Cola globalization kind of period, you know, if they have to give a quick caricature. Yeah. There's a lot of nineties nostalgia out there. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Um, I mean, my favorite example of this is in Atlanta, where you can, within steps, visit the world of Coca-Cola and the Museum of Human Rights. <laughs> this is like the this is like the capital of the '90s. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you look back at the '90s, you know, through the journals of the time, newspaper headlines, and so on, as I did for this book, it's very striking that that's not how people saw that period at the time at all. In fact. There were all kinds of concerns about the state system stability starting to come undone. So there was talk of secession from like Quebec to Catalonia mm-hmm. to Scotland. Um, the very creation of all of these new states in the wake of the breakup of the Soviet Union suggested a new frontier for um, state making, which is actually um, not really that frequently done in the in the mm. period since the end of 1945. I mean, the wave of decolonization is of course significant for the introduction of a bunch of new independent nation states, but it's also notable that almost all of those new nation states in Sub-Saharan Africa or Asia more or less kept the kind of contours of the mm-hmm. colonial um, entities that they had been previous. So they aren't really new states as much as kind of transformed states or states with a new um, mm. um you know form of government and when you have on the other hand you know Yugoslavia cracking up another important example Somalia going under as a mm-hmm. stateless society effectively for the most of the 1990s the what you see if you're watching this from a kind of thousand feet up perspective which many of these neoliberal intellectuals do you can say like, okay that's interesting right. <laughs> there actually isn't a equilibrium of the state system mm-hmm. state system seems to be kind of doing some new things and secondly um 
the thing that really struck me in the course of writing the book, actually, that I didn't necessarily start out having in mind, is that when you hit the early 2000s, you get the two developments that are seemingly disconnected, but I began to see as being much more connected than we might think. One is the U.S.-led invasion of Iraq mm-hmm. on thin to non-existent premises. Mm-hmm. Two is the rise in prominence and economic power of Silicon Valley and the kind yeah. of tech corporations. And those two things seem like they're like quite literally on opposite sides of the earth from one another. But when I started reading, you know, Paul Romer, the Nobel Memorial Prize winning economist proposal for charter cities in 2008 or nine. Um, and then the sort of ideas of a Peter Thiel or Patry Friedman to create like a thousand new nations through um, entrepreneurship and startup, you know, uh, wherewithal. It started, or it became immediately obvious to me that this was the condition of possibility for this was the kind of opening up of ideas of sovereignty that was created by the war in the Middle East, that mm. you know, if the United States is off on a nation building project that is you know, not going well, then it's actually a really good opportunity to say, here's a nation building oppor- opportunity that would go much better. Interesting. <laughs> and, we, and we are the efficient ones in Silicon Valley. And Paul Romer does this openly in his, in his 2009 Charter City speech. He sort of says, um, I'm not talking about what they're doing over there in the Middle East. You know, that's violent. That's non-consensual. I want um, countries to give over part of their territory to foreign governments to administer consensually. So in the same way that, you know, Belgian colonialism was used as a kind of alibi for British colonialism in the late mm. 19th century, I think that the American project of rethinking sovereignty in the Middle East um, at the official level served as a kind of foil to make possible other kinds of um, technologically enabled sort of multiplications of of sovereignty. So. From that springs a lot of the kind of um, wild imaginaries of the people in the book. And to name a couple of my favorites, so to speak, because they're pretty (laughs) grim. Right. I think that there is something that I find um, weirdly charming about the the Somalia case that I describe in the book. Um, maybe because it more or less amounts to nothing. So we can't really mm-hmm. pin anything on it, but it's so to briefly explain it to uh, people listening, basically this Dutch guy was a kind of uh, foot soldier of the neoliberal thought collective, uh, you know, translating Friedman and Hayek and in Holland, his native Holland and hosting the Montpellerin society goes to work at Br- in Brussels in the, Commission on Competition, which is sort of a classic, uh, or at least historically was a pretty classic sort of hotbed of neoliberal uh, policy because this was the place where you could like ban state aid and Mm. ban state ownership of enterprises and sort of help to accelerate um, integration within the common market. But he gets kind of disenchanted with the, the fustiness and the bureaucracy and ends up advising um, 
advising the government in Djibouti in the Horn of Africa about mm. how to create these export processing zones that are kind of technically onshore, but formally offshore because you get different tax yeah. incentives and so on. While he's there in the 90s, the Somali civil war breaks out. And he, rather than sort of getting on the next plane, decides that this is actually really interesting development as a as a radical libertarian, you know, that edged that edged and eventually landed completely firmly in anarchism. Uh, mm. He thought that this might be one of those historical openings when something new could be created, like the, you know, as was during the French Revolution or um, the Chinese Cultural Revolution and so on. So this was like a kind of his version of a revolutionary uh, condition or a, a, a moment of, of openness. And he ends up pairing up with one of the main warlords and getting his consent to write a kind of, well, not a kind of, a constitution for a stateless society. Mm. And what that meant seems like a paradox writing a constitution for a stateless society. But what he what he did was he tried to base his proposals on the traditional customary law of the Somali people, mm-hmm. which he gleaned mostly from conversation, but then the work of colonial anthropologists from the 1950s who had been fascinated with the kind of uh, stateless order that seemed um, to prevail in the largely nomadic um, sort of um cattle raising people of the horn of africa and so he's like this could be a way that we get rid of prisons we get rid of cops we get rid of we get rid of parliaments and legislatures we get rid of tax collectors all you have is a pretty limited body of law which is very um in a very precise way details like the terms of restitution and reparation for crimes and infractions on another person. So you kill someone, you owe them X head of cattle, mm-hmm. you know, you, you rape someone's sister or wife, you owe them such and such based on their age and so on. And he sort of tabulates this um, to create his own model and wants to think about it as a way to restore, not kind of a golden age of Somali traditionalism, but he actually thinks that this could be used as a model to accelerate economic integration into the world market and to bring mm-hmm. in foreign investors because the foreign investors are like, oh, there's no taxes. That's cool. There's no um, there's no way for me to be expropriated without very strictly codified like restitution. That's mm-hmm. also cool. So he speaks to the Somali elders and they say, well, why don't you make a white man's clan? <laughs> Why don't you get some of your business friends together and and you know you you let you're interested in clan law? Well, do clan law with your friends. Mm. Um, and so that's what he does. Um, meets up with another libertarian who'd been working at similar stuff for decades, and they create a, a kind of contract for what they call a business Freeport clan. And the idea was, you know, if you're a, a Dallas investor, you'd come in and you'd join the clan. And then all of these laws would apply to you and no extra laws would apply to you and so on. So it was all pretty far out and seemed, you know, it could just seem like almost like the ravings of a lunatic or something. Mm -hmm. Um, And yet it turns out to also my surprise as I was researching this, 
that there was some credibility to the things that he was saying. So economists from libertarians, but all the way to very much centrist or even progressive kind of World Bank um, type uh, technocrats and functionaries acknowledged this bizarre fact in the 1990s or this unexpected fact, which was that the Somali economy was actually doing better with no state and no central bank than it had okay. done with them. So there was seemed to be more trust between people who were engaging in business. People actually put, had more confidence in the currency. The currency was circulating beyond okay. the territory of Somalia. So it seemed, in fact, that there was that it was better to have no state than a terrible state. Right. And and so you know the joke has long been made, like about libertarians or anarcho-capitalists like hey if you hate states so much why don't you move to somalia ha, ha, ha. But in this case they were like literally like no we would we love it That's yeah I've, I've long i've long been a critic of that line i've never seen a libertarian <laughs> care when you said that to them right dull line don't throw it out guys yeah no exactly i mean literally the dude wrote a book called the law of the somalis that's like a classic like it's a libertarian classic and and if- if I, mean, I remember, he didn't make oh, it. Sorry, go, go, no, go ahead, go ahead. If I remember right, their plan got done in because they like sold shares to some people who claimed that they uh, had ownership of part of Somalia, just random online people, and then the Somalis <laughs> found out about it and said, "All right, this is this is all done." Is that accurate? Am I remembering right? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it was even it was even funnier than that, because it was like these teenagers in Houston <laughs> who had who had formed the what they called the Republic of Fredonia uh, in their like based on the Marx Brothers. Yeah, movie, I guess um, in their parents basement. And they took pictures of themselves like as the cabinet of their new country mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. actually emitted some coins. And um the main guy who was called Prince John. So I guess it wasn't a full Republic. It was actually like a constitutional monarchy mm-hmm. um, ended up at Babson business school in the oh. suburbs of Boston here. Uh, yeah. <laughs> There's actually a couple of moments where Babson comes up in this book, huh. um, but he ends up there and is like hustling and trying to get in on this apparent sale of like a patch of the Somali coastline and is just posting online with his Fredonian bros about how they're going to really get it going over there have a new dubai or new hong kong like under their own control and people in the somali diaspora who are similarly online in toronto kick hot wind of this someone sent it to them or whatever and they're just like what in the world and so just (laughs) forwarded this material back to the local authorities in and around somaliland in the north and they were just like this has gone too far um you you know this guy Dutch fellow Michael Van Naughten was was expelled from the country along with mm. the other American investor that he was working with so it didn't work out then but interestingly mm-hmm. enough and this is kind of how I end the chapter before too long and in fact just recently opened now there was a um a special economic zone in a new rather large harbor created in the more or less exact place that Van Naughton, the Dutch anarcho-capitalist, wanted to, and but in this case, it was not done by some, you know, freebooting Europeans, but by Dubai, ah. the state-owned wing of or the state-owned logistics company called DP World, which is the world-leading 
builder of such harbors and ports are. Um, yeah, because the so, Emirates, yeah. the Emirates are turning into sort of a zone that is reaching out and extending power in the region. Yeah, well, exactly. So that's where the book kind of oscillates between these two different registers. It's like on the one hand, you have the the, the sort of far-fetched sort of utopian blueprints of these um, dreamers, really. And most of them are sort of West European or American. And then on the other hand, you have like Singapore and Hong Kong and Dubai, like actually doing it. Yeah. <laughs> so Dubai is, you know, the Emirates are not so much a zone, but like they are comprised of zones. Like mm. Dubai is the territory, however small it is, is divided, you know, into a dense kind of mosaic of different legal spaces with different regulations and incentives attached to each. So if you're in media city, you can do these things and not those things. If you're an education city, you're an internet city and so on. There's different um, rules and laws that apply in these different patches of land. Um, Mike Davis has a great essay about it in the new, mm -hmm. new left review from several years ago. And I, yeah, he used this this term that he uses about um, legal and regulatory bubble domes mm. that sort of exists. So for Dubai to extend that model beyond the Gulf was um, very quite easy because they'd yeah. already sort of perfected it internally. Yeah, I mean this is such this is such a rich book. I have it marked up all over the place of stuff I'd like to talk about, but I know you have limited time. Um, so one thing I wanted to, so you'd mentioned dreamers, you know, North American and Western European dreamers. And one thing I noticed in this book is just the prevalence of imaginary worlds, right? It's not mm -hmm. just that they uh, seek to create these zones for economic convenience, but you talked about David Friedman as a, you know, Milton Friedman's son is a really wild guy. I had no idea he was one of the founders of the Society for Creative Anachronism. Uh, cause I've known, I've known some of those guys and gotta say it fits. Um, you know, there's a lot, you know, uh, we know that Peter Thiel, who backs many of these projects has his fixation on Tolkien. Uh, the author Neil right. Stevenson comes up a number of times. I've actually written mm -hmm. a little bit about him and his, uh, sort of intellectual interests and predilections. Mm -hmm. Uh, so maybe I'll link to that in the show notes. Mm -hmm. Uh, but what do you so obviously these things they become inspirations people try them out so neil stevenson had the concept of the burb clave right mm -hmm. these enclave territories that are sort of like um you know uh gated neighborhoods on steroids or the idea of mm -hmm. the file these sort of distributed tribes that you saw in the diamond age uh mm -hmm. so i guess i'm wondering what how what is the relationship between this kind of libertarianism and the an imaginary world? Because it seems really mm -hmm. prominent. They have yeah. their own sci-fi awards, which I don't think the left has any kind of sci-fi award <laughs> of its own. Uh, like point, how does yeah. that how does that contrast to how other sort of ideological formations treat the imagination? Yeah, it's a good question. I'm glad you picked up on that. I mean, I think that in many ways it sort of loops back to 19th century utopianism that was often socialist, mm. right? And I mean, the idea of Marxism kind of rinsing out the utopians was also mm. in a way rinsing out this side of the fabulous and the fantastic and the speculative and the mm. kind of fictional, right? 
I mean, scientific socialism was called that because it's setting itself up against exactly like affective or kind of emotionally, um, mm. you know, emotional leaps of the imagination and so on. And the libertarians, especially seemingly in the late 90s, although one could, of course, point to like the cross-fertilization of like Anne Rance from the 1950s oh, onward, yeah. Um, have had a very close relationship to kind of this idea of living the fantasy as being not the opposite of politics, but the essence of politics, mm -hmm. right? I think that this is the reason why I, I titled that one chapter cosplaying the Middle Ages. Mm -hmm. um, David Friedman, he wasn't, uh, 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 wasn't sort of at the origin, the birthplace of the Society for Creative Anachronists, but he did help create this one sort of annual gathering in northern Pennsylvania, which which has become one of the hubs for over the decades mm. of medieval recreationism reenactment. And really notably, when he's when he's there, one of the things that he introduced, and I mentioned this in the book, is this thing called the enchanted ground. So he got a little bit annoyed with the way that people were just like bringing in technology from out elsewhere you know i don't know what they're doing like slipping into a nylon sleeping bag once in a while or like putting on a baseball hat in the sun or whatever mm. and he was like no this is breaking the spirit of what we're at we're up to here and he sort of put a rope and said if anyone enters inside of this space you know you are you are uh, agreeing to commit yourself totally to this um fantastical leap back to the middle ages and if you if you break that rule then you're expelled and that can seem again like a just like a hobby that he's up to on when he's not writing legal treatises or something but i think that would be wrong i think that that spirit of kind of like living the speculation um is actually very strong and not necessarily criticized the way that i think it would be and is like say in leftist circles right to say that mm. someone is like larping is definitely an insult <laughs> yeah um you know like that you're trying to act like you are i don't know the red army faction or like mm. a maoist during the culture revolution is like the surest way to for people to be like right crediting you whereas this this crew i think is much more open to the kind of feedback loop going from the fantastic or the fictional back into the political and the laboratories that they set up in some cases are you know good evidence of that i mean they were really interested in gated communities uh -huh. not as symptoms of of um social decline but as places where control could be taken back from municipal and state level governments and restored to the kind of you know purchasers and consumers of specific services whether they were water and energy or security um so in that sense, you know, Neil Stevenson is kind of a great figure who himself is kind of watching political developments, mm -hmm. folding them into his speculative fictions, which are then in turn kind of pickpocketed back out of those fictions and sort of thought through or theorized through in the real life spaces of things like startup societies, you know, um, or gated communities or like these efforts at um you know purchasing land from honduras to create a kind of extraterritorial enclave mm. 
So I don't know what one can make of that more than just to say it's an underappreciated, I think, probably virtue or strength of the mm. libertarian political movement is their their willingness to think the unthinkable, as it's often put, mm. and and then to kind of bring it into life piecemeal without getting all hung up about this being, you know, unscientific and not right. properly collective enough. And like, where is, who is the agent of change? Yeah. Like they're, they're much more willing just to be like, hey, just like, you know, commit yourself to this in your small everyday practices and hope that that prefigures some kind of. Right. I, I feel like if, if I were David Friedman, I'd drive myself crazy in in the zone by saying well okay now everyone needs to speak medieval english right yeah. which like why why does why isn't that why is that why is normal english allowed which i assume it is <laughs> you know and etc et whereas friedman doesn't long, stop himself uh, no exactly yeah no there's not there's like a commitment but there's also like a willingness to fudge in the interest of you know moving in the right direction or whatever yeah um, I mean, I've been thinking about this a little bit with uh, all of these revelations about, you know, Harlan Crow and Clarence mm. Thomas and Charles Murray and these these um, interconnected social scenes of right wing journalists and authors and Supreme Court justices and funders and you know think tankers. I mean, they really are. They really have done very well at producing such a shared ecosystem of ties that it wouldn't even really be accurate to say that for example you know harlan crow was like paying off clarence thomas for some mm -hmm. kind of a court decision right that would be too crude and transactional mm -hmm. because because they see themselves i think as just part of a common community uh, you know to act in ways that were in concert with harlan crow's material interests or whatever would simply be being authentic to himself or whatever um and they are kind of, you know, they are kind of successfully, um, you know, LARPing their way mm. with a with a huge bank account towards a different version of America than the one we currently exist in. So yeah. I think that it could be worthwhile, you know, in our in our discussions of theory to embrace more of this. Someone just wrote a pretty good book about this called Speculative Communities, mm. a guy named Eris. Comprazos Athanasiu, a sociologist. Mm -hmm. And one of the things he's saying is like, especially in the era of social media platforms and so on, it's much easier to create these imaginary ties with people you've never met. And mm -hmm. that that shouldn't necessarily be seen as a bad thing. Yeah. Yeah. So so before I let you go, I uh, I, I want to tell you my little anecdote of my my brief encounter with mm -hmm. Uh, attempted state making and state splitting. So I went to a very small liberal arts college in Vermont that no longer mm -hmm. exists. Mm -hmm. uh, and was that, which one was that? That was Marlboro College. Okay. And very small. And this was at the time, this was sort of Bush era. And there was, uh, you re I don't even know if you could really call it a movement, but a kind of like meme shared among a certain kind of Vermonter bringing back, you know, the Vermont Republic, uh, mm -hmm. because it was, you know, for a little while there, kind of its own thing before yep. joining the union. There was, and our graduation speaker was one of the second Vermont Republic people. Um, <laughs> wow. And he, he talked a little bit about it and he was apparently a very big figure in Burlington. Like he would, he would show up at all the anti-war events and various, you know, uh, causes mm -hmm. 
And come to find out in the end, and I feel like people should have seen this coming given that he came to Vermont from Mississippi, uh, mm-hmm. he was a neo-Confederate. Oh, okay, interesting. Uh, yeah, yeah, you would talk to him for, if you, if you talked to him long enough, he would start saying, well, you know, the South was kind of right. Uh, yeah. I think he's I think he's dead now. Um, but yeah, he was basically like this sort of wandering evangelist for like secession uh yeah. as 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 kind of a concept as a way I, I mean you know to tie it back a way to make some of these fantasies real yeah um, yeah well this, so he's the living embodiment of that saturday night live skit with adam driver which i'm sure you know where the neo-confederates are all meeting in the south somewhere and one of them they stand up and like i just want to be in a place surrounded by only white people just <laughs> pulling vegetables from the soil with my bare hands and like with a dog <laughs> with a handkerchief around its neck, riding around a pickup truck. And someone's like, Oh, I think you just want to go to Vermont. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the, and you have to figure, I mean, Peter Thiel could probably buy the entirety of Vermont, like every piece <laughs> of land on it. Uh, you know, it's yeah. a small state. Um, yeah. I mean the, the free state of New Hampshire, free state of right. stuff is obviously part of this too been written about at length by you know the book just came out called the libertarian walks into a bear yeah um so i didn't feel the need to get into it Uh but there's i think there's many different directions the kind of secession story can go and i also wanted to kind of make it clear i didn't necessarily make it clear enough maybe in the book that i don't necessarily think all secession leads to like anarcho-capitalism right yes there's all kinds of experiments at small scale mm-hmm. social ordering or what i call micro ordering in the in the book um and i actually sort of revel in those and i think they're often yeah. quite great but it is interesting how much that space has been kind of dominated by pretty retrograde politics in the last couple of decades like you know no longer is the average commune like one that would be left-leaning and environmentalist it's probably much more likely like premised on shared whiteness and kind of yeah anti-vax paranoia yeah (laughs) yeah no it's true i've you know having been in vaguely countercultural circles for much of my life uh or at least adjacent to them you know you can Mm -hmm. i've seen that with my own eyes just happened yeah yeah well anyway uh thanks so much for coming on um crack mm-hmm. up capitalism market radicals and the dream of a world without democracy is the name of name of the book uh everybody should go check it out because it's really great and uh thank you again all right peter nice talking to you all right nice talking to you too bye-bye bye-bye